Well, because it is Father's Day, I've chosen to preach from this text in 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16, on the five marks of a man of God. <clears throat> five marks of a man of God. J.C. Ryle begins his book, Thoughts for Young Men, and I would implore all men, and I think all Christians, some must read. He begins his book, his book this way. Ask any pastor of any church from any denomination, ask him th these questions. Who are the most negligent about coming to church? Who are the most irregular in attending Bible studies and prayer meetings? Who sit back at the back of the church, coming late and leaving early? Who are the ones most inattentive to the Word of God, to the preaching of the Word of God? Which part of his congregation fills him with most anxiety and heartache? Who in his flock are the hardest to manage, require the most frequent warnings and rebukes, who occasion in him the greatest fear for their souls and seem most hopeless? Depend on it, they are men, especially young men. Ask the parents throughout the country and see what they will generally say. Who in their families give them most pain and heartache? Who need the most watchfulness and most often disturb and disappoint them? Who are the first to be led away from what is right and the last to remember good counsel? Who most frequently break out into open sin and disgrace the family name? Who are the ones that waste time? They waste health and money in the selfish pursuit of pleasure. Who are the ones who follow no particular profession and waste away the most precious years of their lives doing nothing? Depend on it. They are the men, especially young men. Ask the judges and police officers. Who are the ones that frequent the bars and clubs the most? Who are the ones that make up riotous mobs and rebellious meetings? Who are the most arrested for drunkenness, disturbing the peace, fighting, stealing, assaults, and the like? Who fill the jails and the prisons? Depend on it, they are the men, especially young men. Ungodliness and men seem to go hand in hand. And it's a sad truth in the world and even in the church that a godly man, a truly godly man, is a rarity today. Well, for all the fathers here with us this morning, I was counting last night, we have eight fathers at Cornerstone now. Four first-time fathers and four fathers for several years. I want to ask you guys, and ask all men, ask all the Christians here today, gathered here this morning, what is the divine imperative in your life? What is the divine imperative? This is something you must do in your life. What is the greatest need of your children? What is the greatest need of your wife and your family? For all the fathers and husbands, what is the one thing that will determine whether you will be a good husband and a good father. Final question for everyone here. What is that one thing that should be dominating your lives every day? I believe. The Bible's clear. It is that you would be a man of God. 
It is that you would be a man of God. This must be the goal of every Christian. Of every Christian. Anything less is unacceptable. The pressing need of the hour in the family, in the church, in the world, is for men to step up and be men of God. To fulfill the role that God has given them and to be God's man. Now why do I say this? I say this because in the scriptures, God is often depicted as searching for a certain kind of man. God is the great searcher, and He's searching for someone throughout the world. The four corners of this earth, He's looking for someone. And who is He looking for? 1 Samuel 13, 14, The Lord has sought out a man after His own heart. He's looking for a man who, will, who is seeking for God. Seeking for the heart of God. Jeremiah 5.1 God tells Jeremiah, Roam to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look now and take note. See if you can find a man. One who does justice. One who seeks truth. Second Chronicles 16.9 The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. Looking for those hearts who are fully committed to Him. God is looking for godly men. Godly Christians. And the question is raised, then what are the marks of true godliness? What are the marks of a godly man? Now in this most important category, the things that the world deems important are thoroughly unimportant. The world esteems your education. It means nothing here. The world esteems your uh, your, your income status, income position, your job, your intelligence, your personality, your athletic skills, whatever, anything. Those things matter not at all here. In this all-important category, these things are meaningless. If we were to have Apostle Paul this morning with us today, and we were to ask him, Paul, what are the marks of a godly man in your definition, in your estimation? What are the marks of a truly godly man? No doubt he would turn us to 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. And he would repeat to us what he told Timothy in these verses. 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. We spent about two and a half years preaching through this. It has left an indelible mark upon me as a person, as a Christian, as a pastor. My study, our study in 1 Timothy 6 is, has been foundational in terms of what I pursue, my goals as a husband, as a Christian, as a father, as a minister of the gospel. Well here Paul is writing to a young man named Timothy. And this guy, he's a young pastor, maybe in his 30s, you know, like me. He's a young pastor like me, he's in over his head. He's uh, drowning. He's not doing too well. He's ministering the church at Ephesus. And I, I give him some slack. I can understand him because he's ministering under the shadow of the Apostle Paul. That would be a tough act to follow. I, mean, I think I would refuse. If Apostle Paul preached and I'm up next, I'd be like, oh, I'm not feeling too well. right? Yeah, call someone else. I mean, it is a tough role to fulfill, but nonetheless, what aggravates the situation is that he's a, a timid young man. He's struggling with timidity. And he has a real overwhelming sense of personal inadequacy that is really hindering him from being a man of God. 
from being a godly pastor. In our study of 1 Timothy, we, we saw that he even contemplated leaving the ministry, leaving his ministry at Ephesus because his, his dreadful sense of inadequacy was pressing him away. Well, Paul writes to him and he gives to him much needed instruction and encouragement about the Christian life and about the Christian ministry to Timothy. And in the end of the epistle, where the last chapter, last verses, he closes this, he closes this letter by exhorting Timothy to be a man of God, that he is a man of God and to pursue these marks of true godliness. Let's go to verse 11. Paul begins that verse by, with these words in the Greek, but you, in the NASB, it's not written that way, but in the Greek, the first two words are but you. Now stop right there. That conjunction but stands in contrast to, the, to verse 10, the context. Paul is contrasting Timothy and these false teachers that he had just talked about. He talked about some men who were eager for money, therefore they wandered from the faith. And because they loved money so much, they pierced themselves with many griefs, many sorrows. Paul says, but you, don't be like that, Timothy. But you, Timothy, that's not the pattern for you to follow. That's, those aren't marks of godliness. They aren't examples for you. But you, you be different. You are to be radically different from such men. You must stand firmly against their ungodliness. And he doesn't use the name Timothy. He doesn't call him by name. Instead, he calls him by a title that has great significance in the Bible. He says, but you, man of God. He chooses to identify him with a title that is rich in significance in the Old and New Testaments. He calls him a man of God. What a privilege to be called a man of God. Now, you know, Rex called me that in his prayer and I'm just thoroughly humbled because that's what I'm pursuing. I'm by no means there. Um, we, we say that about one another in encouragement. But imagine if the Apostle Paul called you a man of God. That would be something, wouldn't it? It's not some like shady guy, you know, with some flaky Christian or non-Christian calling you a man of God. You actually pray before meals? Man, you're a man of God. No, this is the Apostle Paul. Right? I mean, he knows. He knows Christ. He knows truth. He knows, he discerns true Christianity with false Christianity. And he calls Timothy man of God. A man who personally belongs to God. No other person in the New Testament is given that title except for Timothy. It is used several times in the Old Testament. Man of God was an official title given to a man who spoke for God. Like prophets were often called a man of God. Deuteronomy 33.1 Judges 13.6 1 Samuel 9.6 Samuel is identified as a man of God. 1 Kings 17.18 Elijah is called a man of God. 2 Chronicles 8.14 David, this man after God's own heart is called a man of God. Moses, Samuel, Elijah, David, these men were all called and they were all men of God, men who belonged to God, men who represented God, men who spoke for God, men who stood for God, and Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, calls Timothy God's man. And by Paul doing that, he places him among elite company. 
You're a man of God, Timothy. You're a man of God because you have these marks of a man of God. Right? Only one other time Paul uses that phrase in the New Testament, and that's found in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. Paul says there that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. He says the inerrant, infallible, sufficient, perfect word of God is thoroughly able to equip a man of God for the work of the ministry. So by that, he is saying that every Christian who acknowledges the purity of God's Word, studies the Word of God, and stands behind the text and articulates His truth, by that, he or she belongs to God. He or she is God's man. They are no longer world's men. They are raised beyond earthly things. The person has become God's property, God's possession. Well, Paul calls Timothy a man of God, and he outlines for Timothy and for us five characteristics, five distinctive features of someone who belongs to God. Right? Now, because Paul is talking to Timothy, it is gender-specific. It is man. But these truths, these marks apply to all Christians, men and women. We all understand that. Well, the first mark is found in verse 11. He says, but you man of God, flee from all this. Flee from all this. Now, what is all this? Number one, the first thing the man of God flees from is sin. A man of God flees from sin. That word flee, the, the verb in the Greek is the first imperative verb found in this passage. It's, an, it's a command. Timothy, you are running away continue to run away from sin. It is in present tense, in indicating it is not a one-time running away. But it's a daily fleeing. He's constantly running away. Because sin lies to entrap the man of God at every turn. He is daily running. The Greek word is fuego, from where we get fugitive. He's a fugitive from sin. Sin is out to get him and he's running away. It indicates a fear for running away from, like, from a plague, from someone who's got an infectious disease, or from a deadly animal. Right? I'm sure all of us know about know this person, Steve Irwin, right? better known as a crocodile hunter. Right? You watch the show, and the guy's just a, guy's a nut. The guy's just crazy. I mean, he goes, look at that snake. Ten most, the, the most deadliest snake in the whole world. Let's go see him. And then he grabs the snake. Oh, he almost bit me. Man, I would have been dead if he bit me. Wow, it was scary. What are you doing? Right? You should be running away from the deadliest snake in the world, not chasing after it. Well, in the terms of the spiritual world, some men have such brazen attitude towards sin. Right? Instead of running away from sin, running away from temptation, guarding against anything that would tempt him in any way. Some Christian men gravitate toward temptation. They gravitate, they're attracted by sin. They are sin-centered. They're sin-centered. Such a man is not a man of God. A man of God is not pompous in his righteousness. 
He is not, you know, I'm so godly. I can watch things, hear things, you know, do things, and it doesn't affect me spiritually. I'm above it. I've come to a point in my Christian walk where, man, you know, those things do not hinder me any longer. No, a true man of God fears sin. He is afraid, he's petrified of sin, of how sin will dishonor God, offend God, how sin will bring reproach upon the gospel, how sin will hurt fellow Christians. You know, false masculinity is, is this idea of individualism. I'm a man, I'll do what I want to do, I don't care about others, how it affects them, as long as I, I live by my convictions. No, that's false masculinity. True masculinity, Christian masculinity is, I follow Christ and I'm concerned about my behavior because it affects people that I love, my family, my church. A true man of God is afraid of sin because also what it might do to him and what it might do to his family and his church. A man of God fears sin. A God-centered man doesn't have a cavalier attitude towards the many temptations of this world. They don't think, um, you know, I will only toy with sin for a time. I will t play with sin and turn to God later. I think a lot of young men fall into this trap. That they can kind of play with sin, play with temptation, and it has no consequences. J.C. Rowell says this, listen up. He says, the way of sin is downhill. A man cannot stop whenever he wishes. It's like double black diamonds. You fall, you fall while skiing. You can't stop whenever you want. To think that one can play with sin for a short time and stop whenever he wants is complete foolishness. J.C. Rouse says, quote, The danger of sin in the young man is because of the force of habit. Habits are like stones that, that are rolling downhill. The further they roll, the faster and more uncontrollable is their course. Habits like trees are strengthened by age. The older they are, the stronger they grow. The longer they have held possession of the soul, the harder they will be to cast down. They grow with our growth. Habits of sin grow with our strength. Habit is the nurse of sin. End quote. The man of God knows the dangers of sin and he fears sin. And furthermore, he knows that sin is never truly covered up. He knows that sin is never truly covered up. And I read this verse, I think a few days ago. At Serene. I read that verse to my wife. And I said, man, that hurts. She's like, what, you feel okay? And I meant like spiritually. Numbers 32, 23. If you fail to do this, you'll be sinning against the Lord. And be sure of this, that your sin will find you out. I quoted that verse to my wife and I said, man, that hurts. That's a, that's a humbling, sobering truth. And you can be sure of this, your sin will find you out. There is no such thing as private sin, of hidden sin. Because the Bible tells us, Hebrews 4.13, that God is omniscient. And God is omnipresent. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give account. 
the principle here is that secret sin is built on a wrong theology of God, on a false theology of God. If anyone thinks that their sins are secret because no man knows their sins, you're building your house on false theology. You're building your house on sand. And one day it's going to come crashing down in public. Our Lord said this in Luke 12, 1, 2, and 3. Be on your guard against the east of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you have said in the dark will be heard in the daylight. What you have whispered in the ear in the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the roofs. The principle here is that secret sin is only temporarily secret. It's only temporarily secret. And God is not mocked, guys. We need to have a, a strong dose of, of, of fear of sin. God will not be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Sin breeds sin. And hidden sin breeds more hidden sin. And as sin accumulates, it becomes impossible for the sin to be managed. And after it consistently grows, it is so far uglier than the initially attractive sin. That is why when you see someone fall, you know, as a pastor, I grieve every time I hear some pastor falling, being disqualified because of sin. But you know that when someone falls in sin publicly, you know that he has been practicing and enjoying that sin in secret for a long time. It's not like it was all good. He was walking by the Spirit, living to please God, and oh, one day, everything came crawling down. No. Years, years ago, he was building his house on sand. He was enjoying and practicing secret sin. The pattern was there. It was hidden from man. But it was seen by God. And by that hidden sin, he was prideful before God. He was saying, God, you, know, you don't know. You're not omnipresent. And by that pride, he has become an enemy of God. By pride, you have turned against God. And God humbles, humbles men by having that man bear the consequences of their sins. A godly man has a dreadful fear of sin. Therefore, he flees. He's a fugitive from public and, and private sin. That's the first thing he runs from. Second and third thing is really the context here. Maybe they ought to be one and two. What Paul is telling Timothy specifically in this verse is found in the context of verses 3 through 10. He's talking about false teachers and what motivates false teaching and the consequences of false teaching. So a man of God runs away from sin and secondly, a man of God runs away from false doctrine. He's saying, but you Timothy, do not be like these men who pervert the ministry by teaching what is false. You flee from wrong teaching. A man of God is a man whose mind is completely submitted to the scriptures. Therefore, he has a great aversion to error. Great aversion to false teaching of God's word. He literally runs away from false doctrine. 
Then the final thing is that the man of God flees from the love of money. Flees from the love of money. Right? Verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Therefore, verse 11, but you, man of God, flee from all this. Right. In verse 10, Paul rightly ascribes the true motivation of these false teachers. They're not driven by truth. They're not driven by the glory of God. They're not driven to please the Lord. Their ministry of promoting false doctrines is driven by their love for money. Paul tells Timothy and Paul tells us to run from this trap. This sinful desire to be rich. This sinful desire. This sinful love for money. Which is the source of all kinds of sin. Paul says to Timothy and to all Christians. You man of God flee from all this. And it is not a mindless running away. He's not just running away mindlessly. But as he's running away from these things. At the same time he is a pursuer. He is a pursuer. And Paul outlines six things that the man of God pursues. Six things that the man of God pursues. Number one, he pursues righteousness. He pursues righteousness. This is not the imputed righteousness of God where we are positionally righteous before God. This is the practical righteousness. It is the act of doing what is right before God and man. It is right behavior, right conduct. This is the overarching virtue of a man of God. He follows hard after righteous behavior. He pursues it with his life. He likes it. He wants to do what is right before God and man. The flip side of righteousness is the next virtue, godliness. It, it goes from our outward behavior to the spiritual side, the inner man. He pursues godliness. Now what is this? It is almost, it's so difficult to really, like, describe, articulate, but it's easy to like, perceive in a person. It is um, reverence for God. It is um, devotion to God. It's piety in the heart. It is the right attitude with a heart of worship, heart of reverence, a heart of devotion. Where there is genuine godliness in his inner being. It's not an act. It's not a performance. It is not a public persona that he's doing. But in the core depth of his heart, he's seeking the Lord. Thirdly, the third pursuit, third thing that the man of God pursues is faith. Faith. He daily pursues to trust and entrust himself to God. He's entrusting himself to God. It's the act of faith. God's sovereignty is the issue. God's sovereignty. He lives his life in the acknowledgement that everything in his life is in God's control. Therefore, he daily pursues trust, entrusting himself to God's sovereignty. He's not bitter about the past. He's not discontent. He's not angry. He's not bitter. He's not unforgiving. He's content. He's rejoicing. He's thankful. Because all his thoughts and actions flow from his faith in the, in the, in the sovereign God. I mean, I saw this recently in, in Bob, talking to him Friday, Friday morning. Just, he was saying he was so thankful. He was filled with gratitude. He was filled with praise. 
Now I was telling him that when I saw him, um, right, after the, right after the surgery, he had all these tubes on him, he was knocked out with drugs. I felt like he was in such a dark place. I mean, his body was right there, but I felt like, where is Bob? He seemed like he was so far away. And seeing him Friday morning, we're saying, it feels like you came back from a long journey. You were gone for a long time, and Bob, you came back from a long journey. He said it was the most painful thing he endured, but he was so thankful. He was entrusting himself to God's sovereignty. He was praising God. A mark of a godly man. The fourth thing he pursues is that he pursues love. He pursues love. The man of God is a lover of God. He loves God. Everything he does because he loves the Lord. Fifthly is endurance. The Greek word is hupomone, remaining under. Unrelenting steadfastness. Like in difficult times, he steps up. He braces himself and he remains under. There is no wavering, there is no compromise. A man of God is not a spiritual cream puff where, you know, it gets heated, it gets difficult, and he wants to back down. He wants to take a break. We get this once in a while. You know, people say, you know what, can I take a break? Break from what? You're not doing anything, right? Can I take a break? It's getting too difficult. The man of God says, when it gets difficult, he steps up. He commits more. He endures even in a greater way during times of difficulty and times of trial. He pursues active endurance. He's not running away from suffering. He's not running away from difficulty. He wants to endure difficulty. And then finally, gentleness. Meekness. He has his power, his faculties under control. He's gentle. He has authority, he has strength, he has power, but it is all submitted to Christ. If anyone knows what he's talking about, it's Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul knows what it is to pursue Christ because he is a model of someone pursuing Christ. In Philippians 3, 10 through 15, at the end of his life, nearing the end of his life, Paul talks about his pursuit. He says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, I forget what is behind and I strain towards what is ahead. It is the idea of an athlete running and finishing the race and he's so intent on winning that he's leaning forward to finish one second quicker. I am straining towards what is ahead. I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Paul is not coasting to the end. He is running to the finish line. His whole life was, a, was one of pursuits. His whole life was one of, of, of running away from sin and pursuing Christ. He is a model of this that we are all to follow. So man of God, God is a man of God, runs away from sin. He pursues these six virtues. And third mark is a man of God is a fighter. He is a fighter. 
And I love this. I think we need this. We need this kind of mentality in all Christians, especially Christian men. Christian life is too hard. But if you don't have this mentality, maybe it's better not to start this Christian race. It's better not to even start following Christ because the Christian life is so difficult, so challenging. This mentality is a requirement. It's a prerequisite. Verse 12, Paul says, fight the good fight of the faith. Paul calls this fight a good fight, meaning it's a noble fight. It's a noble war. It's a valiant struggle. It is essential to see that the man of God is a fighter. He is a contender. He is a soldier. This idea is so important for us, guys. Because we live in a feminist and a feminine culture. The world tells men to be soft, to be cream puffs. Right? The world tells us, you know, Oprah Winfrey tells us, tells the man, Dr. Phil, he tells the man to get in touch with their feelings. Right? To go to the womb, right? And unearth these, these, these sensitive, uh, feminine feelings. To open up with their emotions. And because of this, Douglas Wilson says, we have feminine men. He calls them men in skirts. Men who play with to dolls. Right? Men who play with dolls. Right? These are men who have a wrong understanding of true masculinity. He calls it counterfeit masculinity. These are men whose lives revolve around and they're dominated by women. Right? They are, you can identify men like this. They're spiritually passive. Right? They're spiritually passive. They're not leading in their homes towards, towards God. They're not leading their families. They're not, they're not visible. They're invisible spiritually. Right? On the golf course, on the basketball court, arguing about sports, they're, they're visible. They want to voice their opinion. They want to be seen and known. But in the spiritual realm, they want to be invisible. They want their passive. They, they're, they're without strength. They're without conviction. They're gossipers. They get together and they just talk about all these things. They waste time. I am in people talking about just things that are just pointless, that are hindering. Right? Talking about things not befitting a man of God. Well, not the true man of God. He's a fighter. He's a contender. The Greek word is agonizomai. It means to labor fervently. He's someone who is living to work. He's not passing away, having fun and just recreation. He's living his life to struggle. It's in present tense. It means continual fighting. And there's a, again an imperative tense, imperative mood. It is a command. It's, it, it describes a man who contend in public games. Ryan's dictionary says that this word was used to describe boxers in Greek athletic games. Historians tell us that the gloves of the boxers were lined with fur on the inside, but on the outside it was made with tough leather lined with lead and iron. And often the loser of the contest had his eyes gouged out, forever humiliated that he lost. So we can appreciate a little bit what Paul is alluding to here when he says, and he tells Timothy to be a fighter, to fight the good fight of the faith. And his role in life is to be a defender, 
to be a protector and to be a savior. For the faith, for his family, his wife, his children, his church. That's his role. He's there to defend. He's there to protect. He's there to save. He is fighting. He does not back down. Now what is he fighting for? Now we understand it's not physical fighting. The spiritual realm. What is that fight? Simply put, it's fighting in and fighting for the Christian life. Fighting in and fighting for the Christian life. I think Paul uses this analogy because it's so true. Christian life is war. It's a fight. It's a street fight. You need to go there and go all out. If not, because it's so difficult. Sin is so powerful. world is so corrupt. Without this mentality, you will lose every time. It's, it's about fighting against sin. It's about fighting against conformity. It's about fighting for what is true and what is right. What is right theology, right doctrine. It is fighting to save the lost. Fighting against all those who, who oppose Christ and His Word. And it is wrestling, it is struggling in prayer for others. Now, did you guys fight this week for Bob? I mean, did you guys? Did you guys get on your knees and wrestle and struggle and fight for Bob's health? Wrestling for the mission teams? Wrestling for the salvation of the lost? Paul says this, Colossians 1, 28-29. We proclaim Him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone perfect in Christ. He says, I am, I am committed. I, my ministry is to teach and admonish, to, to edify everyone, to make all Christians perfect, complete in Christ. Verse 29. To this end I agonizomai. To this end I labor, I wrestle, I struggle, I fight. Struggling with all His energy which so powerfully works in me. Romans 15.30 I urge you brothers by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the, love of the Spirit to join me in my agonizomai for the Lord. Join me in my struggle by praying to God for our ministry. Paul tells Timothy, Paul, Timothy, join me in suffering for the Lord. Join me in this Christian battle, fighting and contending for the faith. The man of God flees from sin, pursues godliness. He fights the fight of the faith. And number four, he is faithful to God's command. He is faithful to God's command. Verses 13 through 16, In the sight of God who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's lack of time here to go, to the, go through the interp interpretive issue of what this command is referring to. But simply put, this command is referring to, I believe, the whole revealed Word of God. Right? Keep the commands of the Bible. Keep the Word of God. Obey the Scriptures every day. Day in, day out. Be faithful to God's Word. Right? The man of God is faithful to God's command. Well, let's go to the final one. The final one is not in the text. 
But I believe that you would agree with me that it's there. Can't believe I just said that, but <laughs> right? That's not sound hermeneutics there, but it's there. A man of God invests in others. A man of God invests in others to build them up in Christ. And you see that, right? It's not in the text, but what is Paul doing? Paul is responsible for the propagation of the gospel to the Gentile world. Not a small task. Man, he's got a full plate. What is he doing? He's writing a letter. He writes two letters to one person. To Timothy. Right? We see here Paul pouring out his life to one man. Because knowing that he will reach the world through one person. Right? Brothers and sisters, you want to impact the world for Christ? You want to impact missions for Christ? How about starting with one person? Right? It's not scratching the surface of many, but digging a well in one person. That is true ministry. Right? If one man is enough for Paul, then one man is enough for you, enough for me. Right? A man of God is busy. He's got a full plate. When he's running away, he's pursuing, right? he's fighting, he's daily keeping the word of God. I mean, he's, we're all busy. Right? Who's not busy? But a true man of God sets aside time. He makes time. He says no to things so that he can spend and he can invest his life in others. Are you helping others? You might be doing the first four, but are you doing the fifth? Right. Are you evangelizing? Seeking to make someone a man of God? Are you mentoring? Are you leading? Are you discipling? Are you caring for a younger believer? Right. If you are a maturing believer, I didn't say mature, but a maturing believer, if you are a believer that has in any way received the grace of God to grow, and you're not caring for a young believer, then you're not complete. You haven't come full circle. You need to come full circle and you turn to another person and invest in him or her and call that person to follow these marks. Let's pray.